Good afternoon, everyone. It is Friday, December 8th, and we're broadcasting again here from the Missouri Funeral Directors and Embalmers Association in Jefferson City. Uh, being that it is December 8th, that means, of course, yesterday was Pearl Harbor Day. Uh, that is a day that seems to get less and less attention every year. But if you ever get a chance to go out and see the USS Arizona Memorial out at Pearl Harbor, I highly recommend that. And that leads us into what we're going to talk about today is why. Why do we do certain things? Well, as you, if you've taken my law class, and again, uh, talk more about the law class in just a little bit. If you take my law class you'll know that one of the things that we cover in the law class is the rules for burial at sea. And the rule for burial at sea is you have to take, and this applies to both full body, bodies and cremated remains, you have to take them out three nautical miles. And the reason why Pearl Harbor uh, triggered that is something we might want to talk about today is because there are exceptions to the three-mile rule. And one of the biggest exceptions to the three-mile rule is the USS Arizona. Survivors of the USS Arizona, if they so choose, could have their cremated remains taken by a diver down and placed with their uh, comrades that perished in the uh, Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th, 1941. So that is one of the major exceptions to the normal three-mile rule where you are not supposed to uh, put bodies or cremated remains into the ocean unless they're at least three miles out, nautical miles out from shore. So first question is why three miles? I've gotten that asked. What, what's the big deal with three miles? Well, that's a very long, that's an very interesting historical uh, quirk out there. Back in the uh, ye olden days, the dispute was how far out did a country's border go? OK, uh, at what point when you got close to somebody's shores, were you infringing? Were you now trespassing on that country's land? And the convention that came up then was three miles. And the reason it came up to be three miles is because that's how far the longest guns could shoot. <laughs> so uh, since we couldn't since we couldn't shoot you outside of three miles, we're going to claim as our territory up to three miles. Well, it was that way for a long time, but that's uh, long since got as passed. The, the convention now for what are your actual territory, what is part of your country, is 12 miles from the shoreline. Uh, there's also, you're allowed to have uh, economic exclusion zones where you've got the sole rights to economic resources and activity in an area can go up to 200 miles out. But then, of course, uh, you, you got to be careful because, you know, Cuba is closer than 200 miles to Florida. So there has to be board dashes and dots on lines everywhere and things like that. So the old three mile limit was the result of that is how far a cannon could shoot. And of course, that uh, it didn't take long before cannons could shoot longer than that if you wanted to build them big enough. But nevertheless, that three mile thing stood. And even though it's no longer three miles, it's at least 12 miles and sometimes longer than that the old three-mile limit still stuck around in different parts of different statutes. It just kind of hung around there. And one of the areas where it hung around is burial at sea. So if you're burying 
either whole bodies or cremated remains at sea, you have to take them out at least three nautical miles. Another question I get is, what's the difference between a nautical mile and a regular mile? Well, a regular mile is a mile. A nautical mile is a little bit longer than a regular mile because it's based on the uh, latitude longitude percentage of that. And that doesn't work out to be quite the same. But in any case, uh, it's, it is three nautical miles for those of you that might be taking any law exams out there uh, at some point in time um, or other tests. Uh, that's one of the reasons we go over that in the law class. So the question is, why do we do certain things that we do? Well, there's the three mile one. So here are some other ones that um, I've gotten questioned about over the years is why do we do things? One, and this is very important for us right now because we're looking at changing some of this, is why do we have these requirements in the statute that an embalmer must embalm 25 bodies? During your apprenticeship, under the current law, if you want to become an embalmer, you must do an apprenticeship that lasts for one year, at least. And during that one year, you must embalm at least 25 bodies under the supervision of a licensed embalmer. Now, if our new legislation were to get passed and you were able to get those 25 bodies done in six months, that would be okay. It reduces the minimum that the apprenticeship must be to six months. But you still have to do 25 bodies. Why 25? Well, here's the answer to that. Nobody knows. Seriously. 25 has been in the statutes for a long, long time. And it's it's some other states have 25 as well. Some have a lot more, but there's other states that pick 25 for some reason. And to be honest with you, absolutely nobody knows why the number 25 came up. Why not 15? Why not 30? Why not 20? Got, got no clue. Sometimes when you're looking at statutes and regulations, the answer is got no idea how they did this. Now, remember how I remember it has to be 25 bodies. The apprentice must do at least two a month and an extra one at Christmas, because I'm pretty sure that a whole lot of time, if uh, you have to embalm a body at 3 a.m. on Christmas Eve, that apprentice or intern is going to be there. Uh, just guessing on that one. But um, 25 bodies, that's the rule, and there's no rhyme or reason. The same with 10 Funerals for the funeral director apprenticeship. The funeral director apprenticeship. During your apprenticeship, you have to conduct and arrange at least 10 funerals. Why 10? Nobody knows. It's just in there. Now, under our proposed legislation, if you want to avoid the arts examination, you will have to do 25 funerals uh, and arrangements. So why did we pick 25 under the new Option B, the way to avoid the way to avoid the uh, arts exam, you have to do 25 funerals instead of 10. Why did we pick 25? Well, we got a good reason for that one to make it the same as the embalmer rule. <laughs> that was just a good number because we already had that the embalmer has to do 25 bodies. Why not say the funeral director has to do 25 funerals? It made symmetrical, kind of yeah, kind of nice like that. So that's why we have that. Here's another one we get. And again, all these kind of tie into how sometimes legislation and regulations get adopted. And one question I got was, why does the cooler where you might store your uh, body, what's the magic? Why 40 degrees Fahrenheit? Why is that a magic number? Well, you know, for a long, long time, there were no regulations. 
The statutes didn't cover a lot of things. And people just did whatever they want. Then starting the, the first stat, the first really big statutory change where we actually had some regulations dealing with funeral establishments and funeral directors was in the 1930s. It wasn't much, but that was kind of the first big uh, push for some of those regulations. Then it kicked in uh, more after World War II and then more and more into the 50s and 60s. And so, and again, you know, most funeral homes didn't have a cooler back then. Uh, in a big city, a morgue might have had a refrigerated unit, things like that. But as it started to develop throughout the years, that sometimes bodies were kept in a refrigerated unit, they figured we better have some regulations on this. And so they picked that the, uh, in Missouri at least, uh, if the body is being stored in a refrigerated unit, the ambient air temperature in that refrigerated unit must be kept at 40 degrees Fahrenheit or below. Um, why 40 degrees? Well, this, this there's no way to make this sound really good, but they looked to the food industry. And the standard for storing food was 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And the reason the food industry picked 40 degrees is based on their research that 40 degrees was kind of the highest temperature you could have stuff at and for it not to quickly degrade, to rot, to have microbes and things like that start dealing with it. If you had it any warmer than 40 degrees, you started to have the problems. But you also had to be careful about getting too low below 40 degrees because with fluctuations, particularly Back when these regulations were done a long time ago, thermometers might not have been as accurate. Uh, the electrical supply might not have been accurate. The freon that was in there might not have always worked. You wanted, you didn't want to require it to be too much lower than 40 degrees because things could happen where you might freeze what was in the cooler. And freezing what was in the cooler was bad for the uh, produce and meat industry when you didn't want it frozen. And, of course, it would also be bad uh, in a funeral situation because you don't want freezing temperatures in your cooler. So it, it kind of sounds kind of, yeah, that, uh, that the rules for storing bodies, and, and there's been research on this, of course, too, at the uh, mortuary schools and all that, that, that helps support all this. But they really did, if you take a look at it, when they first started putting regulations on, on how, cool, cold, you needed to store a body, they, they did take a look at what the food industry did to preserving uh, things for uh, restaurants and supermarkets and warehouses and things like that. Now, of course, the, uh, uh, the mortuary schools and the teachers and the professors and all that did their own studies on that, I'm sure, along the way. I mean, I talked to one of them and uh, a long time ago, Todd Van Beck, actually, uh, who passed away last year. And uh, but yeah, although the research on the funeral side of it confirmed that that 40 degrees was a pretty good temperature, the genesis of that was something that's uh, quite a bit different. All right. Here's another one that I get. And this is uh, when I ever when I always teach the law class, one of the things I always go over is the chapter 436 pre-need. And one of the things that uh, we talk about in pre-need is when you get money from a consumer You've already done the pre-need contract. You've signed the pre-need contract. That part's done. And the consumer gives you money. How long do you have 
to put that money where it's supposed to go. You know, you've got a check, you got cash. How long can you hold on to that before you need to put that money where it's supposed to go? And I don't like this one. And I'm sure a lot of you don't like this one, but here is the rule. If you, as a funeral home, funeral director, or a pre-need agent, if you get money from a consumer on a pre-need contract, and that money is going to be put into a joint account, you have 10 days to put it into that joint account. If you get money from a consumer on a pre-need contract, and that money has to be sent to an insurance company, you have 30 days to send it to the insurance company. If that money, if you get money from a consumer on a preemie contract and that money has to be deposited into a trust, you have 60 days to put it in the trust. 10, 30, 60. It's all the exact same transaction. You're getting money from a consumer on a preemie contract and you're supposed to put it where it's supposed to go. But if it's a joint account, it's 10 days. If it's insurance, it's 30 days. And if it's a trust, it's 60 days. Why? Well, you know what they say uh, about government and sausage. If you have a fondness for either one, you don't want to see sausage being made. You don't want to see legislation being made. And that's pretty much what happened. When Chapter 436 was completely written after the NPS meltdown, and practically all Chapter 436 was ripped out of the book and you started from scratch, you had different interest groups there and people like that. You know, different people wanted this, different people wanted that. The reason that the joint account is 10 days is because there was a legislator and a couple other people over there that said, well, this is going to a joint account. It's at a bank across the street. It shouldn't take you that long. So make it 10 days. Insurance companies said 30 days was you know plenty of time for somebody to get the money up to them. For trusts, I thought it should have been 30 days too. Matter of fact, I thought it should be 30 days for everything. Uh, you know, one of my goals in life is whenever we're over at the Capitol, if there's anything that I can make 30 days or help make 30 days that isn't 30 days, that's what I want to do. I would love to see all the time periods to be 30 days. And I thought 30 days was perfectly reasonable for the money to get into a trust. But there was a person that uh, did work with trusts. Uh, go nameless. There's no reason to... Uh, to finger anybody out uh, on this because we're just kind of having some fun and talking about things, but but this uh, but this person he he insisted that thirty days was not enough money to get money from a funeral home into a trust on a pre need contract, and I didn't understand that. Uh, you get the money, even if you have to collect a bunch of different. People up, you know, people come in and are paying cash and you got to take it or they're writing you a check and you got to cash it. And even if you save stuff up so you're not sending in stuff every day, you do it once a month. The rule is you have 30 days. Well, I, I think there's plenty of time to get it in in 30 days. But uh, an individual who uh, helps with trust uh, disagreed and pushed for a 60 day time period. I really wasn't. The Missouri Funeral Trust really wasn't in a position to oppose that. Because it's kind of something that, well, it, you know, it, it kind of helps, gives trust more flexibility. It's, 
it, it gives trust an advantage over other things. So it's kind of hard to argue against it. Um, other than the fact that, you know, every, the longer those time periods are, the greater chance something goes wrong and you don't find out about it. So we pushed for 30 days, but we really didn't have any leverage to, to say uh, differently. And so some other folks doing trusts and things like that got their way. You got to pick your battles. And there were some certain things that we as an association and as Missouri Funeral Trust and as MFDEA, there are certain things that we definitely wanted to see in Chapter 436 when it was rewritten. And so you got to know when to pick your battles. Don't fall on your sword on this one. If that hurts, you getting something you really, really need. And that's kind of how that's kind of how it went, to be honest with you. So uh, it's 10, 30 and 60. Uh, if Chapter 436 ever gets opened up again, if people start dealing with that, if there's any way I can make those all 30 days, believe me, I will be over there. Uh, assuming my board agrees with me, both boards, I got two boards would have to approve of that kind of thing. But assuming my two boards agree with me that that's a good thing to do, uh, we'll be over there trying to do that. The And this, we're talking about legislation. So this is the last question and the biggest one that I get. And I got it at this past. I was, I was able to go up to the St. Louis Christmas party for the district Christmas party in St. Louis. It was a wonderful time. Um, and I was asked this question there again, like I am all the time. Why is it so hard to get legislation passed in Jefferson City? Why? Well, there's really two reasons for that. One is a very reasonable reason, and one is not so reasonable. The reasonable reason is a whole lot of legislation gets filed. There may there will probably be about 3,000 bills that are filed this year at the legislature. There's only so much time that they have. Every one of those bills has to go to a committee. It has to be reviewed. It has to be voted on by that committee. If the committee does approve it, then it has to go to the full House or Senate. It can get amended at any time in that process. Uh, and the House or Senate has to pass it. Then it goes to the other side. And then it goes to a committee again. And that committee has to hear it. And that committee has to approve it. And then that the other side, whether it's the House or Senate, they have to vote on it and approve it. And if that got amended somewhere along the process, the process may have to start all over again. And there's only so many days, so many hours. And they can't have committee meetings 24 hours a day because they got other stuff they're going to be doing. So the fact of the matter is, is there's just way too many bills filed that, that could ever get through the process, even if everybody liked every one of the bills. So you say, well, you know, you know, every often, you, every now and then you get a bill like our education bill last year. Uh, nobody opposed it. Everybody we talked to thought it was a good idea. The problem is, even if you get a bill that everybody supports, nobody is against and everyone thinks is a good idea. You're in line behind several hundred bills last year. That were good ideas that everybody supported, that everybody thought was a good idea that didn't get passed. So you kind of have to work your way up the ladder sometimes, unless it's some really hot button issue, something that's uh, in the newspapers a lot. It normally takes two or three, sometimes four years to get even a good idea passed, even an idea that everybody thinks is a good idea. 
Well, I'm sorry. There's a whole bunch of other good ideas ahead of you in line, and we can only pass so many bills. Um, so that's the that's the understandable reason. The other reason why it's hard to get legislation passed is because for the past several years over there at the Capitol, we have had some dysfunctional activity. People that don't like each other, people that have some very strong ideological positions that they will not compromise on. And sometimes, and this happened last year, you would have somebody filibustering a bill. And they're, they're filibustering that bill. They're not opposed to that bill. They actually might like that bill. They might actually have said a couple months ago that, hey, I like that. I'm going to vote for that bill. But today they're filibustering that bill. And they're filibustering that bill because the sponsor of that bill didn't support another bill that this person wanted higher up on the list and get a committee hearing and Tuesday instead of Wednesday. And so since my bill didn't get a committee hearing on Tuesday, I had to wait till Wednesday. I'm mad at you. And therefore I'm going to filibuster this bill, even though it's something that I agree with. I'm doing it to get back at you for that way. If you've ever seen uh, the death of a salesman, Biff Lohman uh, has a great line uh, that says spite Spite is the word of your undoing, and the word of your undoing is spite. That's what we got over there at the Capitol, unfortunately, quite often. Uh, and although the Republicans controlled both the House and the Senate, it only takes one Republican over on the Senate side, just a, one or two, it only takes a couple Republicans uh, uh, there, particularly on the Senate side, to pretty much block any legislation. So since it only takes a few people to block legislation and tempers get bad, flare up, you have people that have very strong ideological positions that they refuse to compromise on under any circumstance. And sometimes you have spite. That's the other reason it's tough to get legislation passed. So uh, mark your calendars. Uh, we'll be sending out reminder dates. The last Wednesday in March is, I think that's the 26th, Sixth or seventh. The last Wednesday in March is our legislative day. Uh, that's a Wednesday. Uh, for those of you, let me double check that. I'll look at the calendar right now, make sure I get you the exact right date. Yes, it is March 27th is our legislative day in Jefferson City. We'd love to have you up there because if you want to get your bill moved up along that chain, the more people that we can have out there supporting it the better. And again, look for your emails. As soon as we have a good link for you to see the legislation that we are supporting this year, we'll be sending that out to you. Uh, probably be next week at this point, because today is Friday and I don't have it yet. So look for that email next week that gives you the link to all the legislation and all the dates. And until then, as always, stay safe.